Bolt your windows. Lock your doors. Check your closets. Look under your bed. And then, prepare yourself. For it's another episode of Dark Night of the Podcast. Whoa! Listeners, fans and followers, gays, ghouls, girls, all in between. I am somebody who is rather open about the fact that I suffer from anxiety. I have a pretty constant level of anxiety at all times, kind of just like, and like, you know, an even controllable amount of anxiety, but it can always spike. Just the littlest thing can set it off. It's been a while since I have had something <laughs> so aggressively trigger my anxiety. <laughs> and I just just recently wrapped watching the film Lake Mungo. And I cannot remember the last time that my anxiety was triggered so fucking high. Troy, I am <laughs> sitting here in my house terrified <laughs> terrified of so many things terrified that there could be a ghost terrified that a man could be <laughs> in my house right now and i just i'm just filming it and don't know it <laughs> terrified that i'm going to predict my own death i'm terrified of so much and that's because this movie expertly managed to over and over and over <laughs> Take advantage of my fear. And I just, I am reeling from the experience I had just having watched Lake, Lake Mungo. That makes my heart happy. <laughs> I told you going into this, I was like, we got to capture this now because I am seriously like, I am on edge. Oh my God. Not that, not that, my, my heart isn't happy that you, your anxiety was peaked by any means. Oh, I know. But by the <laughs> fact that you, that you had the reaction to the, that, this film that strong yeah. of a reaction to this film because Roger, this is a film that I recommend anytime that I can to people. You know, I see random posts where people are asking for a, a recent horror movie that actually is scary or unsettling. And I will, this is my go-to this one in session nine, which have you seen session nine? I have not. Oh my God. I know. I know. Okay. So that's another I'm one sorry. we're going to have to cover. At some okay. point, because the I feel like this film and Session Nine would pair very well together. They have a very similar, dreary, somber tone to them. But this film, the experience of watching this film the first time, I don't think you can never recapture that oh. feeling when those credits start to roll and you realize what is happening and what has happened throughout the course of this film. It is really a feeling that. I've just never gotten with another film. Now, am I saying this is like the best horror film ever made? No, I'm saying of the last probably horror films that have come out in the last 20 years, 15 years, this came out in 2008. This one is one that probably affected me the most upon viewing it. And when the credits started to roll and really, really made me think. Yeah, it's constantly unfolding and twisting and turning and just when you think you've got a grasp on like the full picture 
it totally like says fuck off <laughs> and it flips you on your ass and you're like left reeling like whoa holy shit like it just takes so many hard left turns uh, and it it pays off in spades because i mean i'm just left thinking about so many things uh dwelling on this movie really like i mean i am left like basting in this film right now because it it really did leave me kind of on the floor just how it really sucked me in the, the these characters are given so much time to develop and evolve and it's just kind of entrancing i can't wait to talk about it with you i also gotta say i do troy you're so smart to pick this i've got a weak spot for like haunted like ghost like recreation series like you get on the discovery channel <laughs> like those those quality of like you know paranormal activity stories i love those i get so drawn in and this is like one of those like dialed up to a billion <laughs> well, you know what it, it all it almost has it at times it almost has a like an unsolved mysteries feel to it do you remember the you obviously oh, i you had know. that goddamn note yeah without robert stack <laughs> yes yeah i mean it really does have because i remember some of the scariest segments on unsolved oh. mysteries were their haunted house oh. segments and this at times very much has that same kind of feel to it oh i'm 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 just tremoring from it. I need you to know, Troy. Like, I'm literally like, and here's another thing to acknowledge. Like, I, and this is so rare, I really have to be horrified for this. But when I get to a point where I'm so scared, and it takes a lot to get me to this point, my eyes just start to like water, to like run. Like, you know, I literally, I just cry. I tear up. I'm one of those people who just, my eyes just uncontrollably cry. It's just a weird mechanism my brain has set up, a uh, reaction to this. And, about four or five times over the course of this film, I found my eyes just streaming. I was just crying out of fear. And like, I can't remember the last time something got me to do that. Like that is how affected I was by this movie. Well, then I am very glad I picked it. This is a film that almost, this is one of those films, Roger, that is kind of the reason why I wanted to start a podcast to be able to talk about this film and get it out there because it seems like the people that know about this film are very passionate about this film uh, and its effect on them. But there is a whole segment of the horror fan population that I feel has not seen this film. I think the more people that can see this film and realize just what a, and I don't want to say groundbreaking because it's, I mean, it's, it's imploring a lot of the same or employing a lot of the same tactics we've seen. We've seen found footage before we've seen mockumentary filmmaking before we've seen all this before, but I feel like this film is groundbreaking in the way that it weaves a mystery that is just builds and builds and builds using these styles of filmmaking because you don't have a strict narrative in this film. It is told through interviews. It is told through video footage, found video footage, but the film manages to keep you on the edge of your seat and keep you guessing. And just when you think you have something figured out, Oh no, you don't, you don't. Uh, I'm not normally a fan of the found footage technique, though there are several that I do absolutely love. Two that come to mind, Taking of Deborah Logan and The Last Exorcism. I had really good experience seeing that one on the big screen. I remember being like really like entranced with it. This blows those two out of the water, in my opinion. And I love those movies. I love them. But they're, the usage of found footage in this specific piece absolutely just adds 
to the whole experience. Oh, I agree. I, I, it makes the film, the film would not be nearly as impactful if it was told in a traditional narrative style. It just wouldn't. Uh, I think the found footage adds so much to that, to the, the realness, the grittiness of the, of the film. And we're going to get into it, but I'm so glad that you, 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 you had the opportunity to see it. I'm glad I finally picked it. 65 episodes into the Good number. And yes, I'm glad. Yeah. And I'm glad I real quick. I am glad that you mentioned that you're not a fan of found footage films because when I had posted that, um, I was watching this film for the podcast, a couple people messaged me. I'm like, Oh, I've never seen that. You know, what is it? And I was like, Oh, you need to check it out. It's, it's, it's truly a creepy, creepy film. It's told found footage, mockumentary style. And they were immediately like, Oh God, no, those are boring. I hate those. And I said, no, give this one a chance. This is, this is one unlike anything you've seen before and anything that's come after it. I don't think there's a found footage film that's come after this one that has done what this one is manages to do to the viewer. Yeah, It draws you in. It, being, it makes you feel like you are literally watching tapes from your neighbors. Well, if you if you lived in Australia, but like you know, like it, I mean, it, it is so expertly crafted. Um, I'm blown away. I'm blown away. Let's let's deep dig in. We sh- we should probably get into it then because the, we've spent ten minutes glowing about the film without even talking about it. So anything before we get into it, you know, we're going to do our traditional little shout outs for our. Uh, for our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Dark Night of the Podcast, where you can currently access about 20 bonus episodes. So check it out. We'll have more coming in April and in the future. And if you sign up, you get access to all past episodes, too. You don't just get access to April stuff. If you sign up in April, you get access to everything. We have some great stuff we're really proud of. So we want you to hear it. And, in the, and by doing so, you will be supporting us and helping us improve the show the quality all that fun stuff so consider it if you don't want to do that apple podcast give us a five-star rating and review and we would be ever so grateful yeah and just to show you guys that we really care like we really care we want to hear input and feedback from you um I'm, i'm pretty sure one of the next few months coming up we're going to really focus on making it a listener picks month a series of four reviews that we sit down with that are specifically picked by some of our listeners well we will announce the exact month for that here shortly um but hey it's incentive to start kind of giving us some feedback on what you would like to hear us jabber about because um i've already heard some really good suggestions yeah 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 you sent me a couple that were suggested to you by by some listeners and i have a few that i'm going to send to you so but we will compile we you know if we get more than four for the month we will just put them in a hat and draw them out uh to be fair and we will cover the four films so yes if you have suggestions and it's going to be a month coming up very soon just so you know it's not we're not talking about eight months down the line we're talking about pretty quickly not next month but think of something very close. And so start getting those suggestions. Even if you see us make a post on Instagram or Facebook regarding a different movie or something we've covered, just, Hey, just mention underneath it. Hey, I'd love to hear you cover this and we will add it to the list. And yeah, so we are excited. Yeah, that, that's gonna be fun. I like the idea of see you and I both watching titles that neither of us has seen. I think that, yeah. <laughs> take it as bold by surprise. Like, yeah, I'm all for it. It's gonna be a good time. It is going to be a blast, a blast. So 
Anything else before we get into Lake Mungo? Man, I am ready to get into this fucking lake. Well, series of <laughs> dried <laughs> cavernous. What are those? The dirt mounds. <laughs> That's not. Yeah. And that, I, you know, in this, that, that setting, the fact that it takes place in Australia, in the very like dry, vast, barren outback, also adds so much creepiness to this film. But we're going to get into it. We are discussing, folks, if you haven't noticed from our 10 minutes of glowing without even actually getting into the film, we are discussing the 2008 Australian film, Lake Mungo. Which was, if you guys remember, you'd be big horror fans, we'll probably remember in the blockbuster days, there were, for about, what, three or four years in a row, there was that series, Eight Films to Die For. There's a whole bunch of films that were part of that. I mean, Dark Ride is one that comes to mind, Grave Dancers, there's a bunch. Uh, Frontiers, I believe, was one of them, which is one of, another one of my favorite films. But it was a series of eight films that were put out. You know, by the, by, I can't, I don't remember the company, but they were put out as premier horror films. Like these are the best of the best, and this was one of them. Now, the majority of the the, the films that were a part of the series over the course of the three or four years that it was out, eh, pretty mediocre. There were a few very very good standout films, and this is oh definitely one of them. Um, directed by Joel Anderson, who doesn't appear to have many credits after this, which is surprising. Oh my God. It's mind boggling. I mean, this is a kind of title that should, in my opinion, get people like clamoring, you know, wanting you to work on other projects, just the way he's able to execute. I agree. First things first, the film folks is told through, as we mentioned, this is, I would say it's a mockumentary. Not necessarily a found footage film. The narrate the narrative of the film is told through mockumentary interviews with various people that were involved. Now, found footage is woven in throughout the runtime of the film, but I would not say this is necessarily a found footage film. It's definitely a, a mockumentary. However, if that sounds like it turns you off right away, please do not be turned off by that fact because it's actually very compelling from like the opening scene. You are introduced to some characters who are truly interesting and you 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 make a connection with them. You feel for them. The one thing I will say about this film that I think sets it apart from a lot of other films in the same style is the acting in this film is superb. Na- so natural you really believe you were watching real people there is never a moment where i think oh god where they find they, this is just something they somebody they pulled off the street to to do this news broadcast no even the news even the people that play the news broadcasters in this film are very believable when i'm looking at you know comparing it to another fa- uh, found footage film that i'm actually a big fan of that also creeped me out quite a bit the pocket the poughkeepsie tapes have you seen that? Oh yeah. Okay. I, no, I'm too scared. No, it is. Honestly, it's an unsettling <laughs> film, but a lot of times in that film, you're really taken out of the, 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 the plot or what's, what's unfolding because there's bad acting sprinkled throughout. This film does not have that at all. This really feels like you're watching a real family tell their story. Beginning to end too. beginning to end. I mean, honestly, one of the, one of the, reasons this film does work so well 
And I urge listeners who have not, for whatever reason, watched this film, go into it as though you are watching a documentary. Adjust your mind to think that you're sitting down for a quality documentary and let it take you by surprise. Because it is so natural, it is played so believably, that, I, I mean, it it is convincing. It is convincing. A majority of the time it is convincing that you are watching what could be a real tape. Now, it does get bigger and more fantastical at certain points to a certain extent, but overall, like, it feels very, very rooted in reality. It does. Now, the film opens with a voiceover from what we learn is Alice Palmer. Um, It actually is a voiceover from an interview that is featured later on in the film. But it's just her basically saying, as we're looking at all these old-fashioned pictures of, I don't know if they're like family members or just people from the past, with her voiceover saying that she feels like something bad is going to happen to her. And in fact, she feels like something bad has happened to her, but it hasn't fully reached her yet, but it's on the way. Now, very compelling way to open the film because we find out that as a huge clue in terms of what actually unfolds throughout the course of this film. This film is like a series of breadcrumbs and it, it hands you so it hands you things um, and, and it will uh, totally throw you on your ass. But yeah, I mean, I, honestly, you look back at the very start of the movie, you're given a huge piece of information to go off of as towards where this is going. It doesn't, no, it doesn't go there at first. It takes a while to get to there. So after the opening credits, we get a still photo of the family that is becomes the protagonists of this film. They're the Palmer family, June Palmer, Russell Palmer and their teenage son, Matthew. They're standing in front of this house. There's no Alice because at this point she has disappeared. And we get a text on screen that reads, In December 2005, a tragic accident began a series of extraordinary events that thrust a grieving family in the small Victorian town of Ararat into the media spotlight. This film is a record of those events. And boy, is it ever. We then get a very jarring 911 call from the night that Alice disappeared. And it's very hard to decipher what the mother is saying, but she is telling the 911 dispatcher that their daughter is missing. And the 911 dispatcher relays that he's going to send, you know, people out there to 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 search. And through a news news report, an actual TV news report, we learn that 16-year-old Alice and her family went to a lake and a dam in Ararat uh, for a picnic, and that she disappeared while they were on this picnic. Right off the bat, the voiceovers, the voiceovers alone on these calls are, are so believable. I mean, it, it's it's something that literally grabs your attention. You're hearing this and you really are thinking, wait, am I watching? Am I watching something that's like really happened? It's just so well done. I don't think I've ever seen a mockumentary that has captured that realistic sound in dialogue. I mean, it, it doesn't feel like you're watching scripted material. It just, it, it's amazing. You're right, because there are many times the actors, when they're delivering the dialogue, they like 
they'll like stumble over their words or they'll start to say one word and switch to the other. So it makes it seem very believable. And like I said, the news, the news segments, the, the, the TV news segments in this are also so well done. You know, you compare them, you compare them to another one of your favorite found footage films that I made you watch or mockumentaries that I made you watch. Megan is missing <laughs> and, and the news reports in that film compared to this. Well, you know what I think this film does in its favor is it allows itself to get really gritty. A lot of this phone footage is from 2005, like circa that era, 2006, and the footage looks it. And in some ways that you think that might be a turnoff, but because this is it done so well and looks so real and handled so believably, it really just adds to some of these scares and these moments because the footage is like flooded with shadows, really harsh lights. Uh, they play it up in its favor. Uh, and it makes it for to, an all the scarier visual, honestly, is these low quality, low resolution videos. It just makes some of these, what ends up being scares, even scarier because it looks like it's grabbed right off someone's, you know, film reel, right off someone's camera. Yeah. So after this news report about the disappearance of Alice, we get a one-on-one -on -one interview with Matthew Palmer, her brother, who explains that him and Alice went out for a swim at the dam. He he swam back to shore, but she didn't return. Um, which this is when they realized that Alice was was missing. Her father was on shore. When Matthew gets back on shore, he looks out to the to the lake and sees that the water is completely still, and there is literally no sign of Alice. Her towel is still on the sand on the ground, so they know that she didn't get out of the water. So when the when the police arrive, they tell the family that they just need to go home. And if they find anything, they will call the family and let them know. And I do like that we do get, you know, the mother saying how hard it was for her to be in the car on the drive home with an empty seat, you know, knowing that her daughter was somewhere still out there. Then we get a couple of interviews with some people that are strong throughout the film, we get an interview with uh, June's parents because they call her, you know, they call her parents on, when they get home to tell them that, that Alice went missing. You know, June makes the comment that it was, it's, it's, it was very weird having her mother there with her and her mother being in the house without Alice, because it just felt like things were out of order because of the generation, you know, you would, you, you think mother, daughter, granddaughter would all be there together, but Alice wasn't there. So it just felt very wrong to her. The family's description of grief over what is several like vignette moments is so meticulous and enthralling. Like it is, it is just very human handled incredibly well. Like I said earlier, it never feels like dialogue. It feels like people really expressing their emotions. And this movie really soon in the game establishes an emotional connection between you, the viewer, and several of the prominent characters in this film that makes the journey all the more impactful. Well, I think one of the, the overarching themes of this film is definitely grief and how different individuals cope with it. The grief the different ways that these three family members handled their grief is what allows what happens to the film to happen. If that makes sense, because they're each reacting in such different, almost extreme ways 
that just uh, puts in puts into motion kind of everything else that happens in the film. Well, the mother talking about literally going into her neighbor's houses, not even feeling wrong about it, just because she's trying to feel like someone else's life for a period of time. And people know it. It's brought up that people in the town are aware of it. Like she's going through it. And like, it make I mean, that makes sense. Like losing a child is one of the most, I can't even imagine, you know, but one of the most traumatic experiences a human can go through. And they give you this very, very meticulously, very well handled. Yeah, there's even there's a point where the father states that he left the porch light on that night and it's been on ever since. And the interviewer asks him why. And he kind of considers it and chuckles. And he's like, well, well, in case she comes home. And, you know, me being, you know, my other passion outside of horror films is true crime. And I'm so familiar with so many different true crime cases where parents have done that same thing or they refuse to change their phone number or they refuse to move. I know like uh, any true crime other, any other true crime fans out there are probably going to know who I'm talking about, but there's a little boy named Jacob Wetterling who went missing and his mother became a very prominent advocate for missing children. And one of the things they did is this very thing is they, they used, they talked about leaving the porch light on constantly in case he came home. So it's very real emotion and very real reaction to losing your child or not knowing where your child is. I don't have children. I never want children, but I can still sympathize with, with that feeling. And, and when I, when I say meticulous, I mean, it, you get the little details that you would see in a documentary, like you're talking with a, um, a true crime scenario. It does feel like that. You get these little details that just draw you into these characters. After after a few of these interviews, we cut to a police video from December 24th, which is three days after Alice went missing. And we see them actually recover her body from the water. And this is the point. I mean, we're only, what, 10 minutes into the film and it's already kind of through. I remember watching it for the first time and it was already thrown a curveball because I thought that this film was really going to be about a missing girl. You know, and the parents search for their missing daughter. I did not expect us to find out that she's actually dead so soon into the film, but you do. And and the father, Russell, has to go out to identify the body. The mother refuses to do it because she says that she cannot, that cannot be the last image of how she remembers her daughter because she knows the daughter, she knows that Alice has been in the, has been in the water for three days. She can't look great. Which she doesn't because we see her body. I mean, we they they don't shy away from showing us her her face as, after she's been pulled out of the water and it's all white and distorted and bloated. The father makes a comment that while he understands June's hesitation to come out and ID the body, he feels like it was a mistake because it, it literally gave her no closure. And this comes into play heavily here later in the plot. And then we see this, and I don't know why, Roger, but this it's such a like non-scary thing, but it just was really creepy to see is after they go to the lake to identify her body, the father says that when they got back to the car, it wouldn't start properly, and that the only way, the only gear that it would shift into was reverse. So they had to drive their car home in reverse 
and you get this shot of this like pitch black outback road with nothing except brush and you see this the lights of this car like driving backwards and i don't know that just i found that incredibly creepy for some reason and i i know that it's also you know a hint paranormal something paranormal because why would the car just all of a sudden stop working the same time they went and identified their daughter's body the film uses the um the setting the australian like hilly skyline and sky full of stars it, it uses it as though it's almost a character in the story you see a lot of really beautiful imagery of this outback and it, it is striking and it's also very unsettling there's something so eerie about it but yeah it almost feels like a character in the story i do want to acknowledge the whole sequence of the body being removed i just want to bring up the fact that it's rare i feel that you see documentary style footage like when they show bodies and reveals when you think of those things oftentimes on like newsreels they don't show that sort of thing so it feels fake you know it feels a little forced but for some reason this this doesn't break anything for me it still feels very realistic the whole removal of the body you just see like a glimpse of this milky white body getting dragged up the shore and it it's chilling i mean it really it is such a creepy bit of imagery and her face, we have to, we have to mention the distorted, bloated white face, milky white face that the camera actually lingers on for a few seconds so that we really get a, a good glimpse of it. And it, it, you're right. It's unsettling. It, it is exactly how I would imagine somebody who was in the water for several days to look. We get news clips of the funeral. Um, she has a nice large funeral. The grandmother comes on and talks about how, you know, it was very hard to spend Christmas together as a family when they knew that Alice was in the morgue. And the mother, June, makes a statement that is very deep and compelling. She says, you know, it it was horrible and and death just takes everything eventually. She says it's the meanest, dumbest machine there is. And it just keeps coming and coming and coming until it gets you. And I thought that was pretty deep and thematically heavy. Oh yeah, yeah. Lots of themes in this movie, and this and they play. Oh, how it leans into it. It knows. It knows exactly the story it's telling. And there's way more intention behind it than just a standard ordinary horror film. This film packs a punch, and you start seeing those themes right away with these really tender, heartfelt at times heartbreaking moments with these characters, especially the mother, especially June. Yeah, I would say June is the character that is definitely the hardest hit by Alice's death and does some of the more extreme things throughout the film. But we don't blame her. Like, I never, there's not one moment in the film where I'm like, oh my God, really? That's dumb. Or you're being ridiculous. No, because her grief seems so authentic. And I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'd have to get into IMDb and really look, but I don't think these actors have ever done much either. So like I'm telling you, this director who also hasn't done much really struck gold with this ensemble cast. I don't know what he did to make them come off so naturally natural. Oh, yeah. But whatever he did, I, I need to learn because, again, this is probably the most realistic feeling 
mockumentary film I've ever seen. Even down to the supporting players, there is there is not a weak link. Oh, that's yeah. There, there's points in the film where you're just getting a couple of like, and it's like 30 seconds of like random girls that Alice went to high school with, and even they seem natural and authentic and real. Again, compared to a film like, and I keep going back to it, but I just want to make the like Megan is missing where the acting was so cringy in spots and it really took you out of what was supposed to be a compelling story being told, but you couldn't buy it because the performances weren't selling it. These performances sell the fuck out of this movie. Yeah. It's a major reason it works. Okay. Now we get into the kind of a shift in where we think this film is going. Because like I said, when I first saw this film, I knew nothing about it. I just knew that it was about a girl that disappeared. So I really thought I was getting into a more like true crime esque film about a girl going missing and the search for what happened to her. Well, that was already with, with, with discovery of her body. Now is the point where the film takes another turn because the interview with Russell, he says it was basically about 10 days after Alice's funeral that strange things started happening around the house. Uh, he heard noises from the roof, uh, scratches outside the windows and other movements coming from Alice's bedroom. They start introducing this information. It's like a twist. All of a sudden it starts to lean in towards this kind of paranormal vibe. One thing with, and whenever we do like a haunted house kind of setup. The early stages of it are really definitive for me. If it's too heavy-handed, it kind of loses me. I like things that feel like, oh, this is what a haunting feels like. I want to feel that fear because it's something that's somewhat plausible to me. I don't know if I believe in it, but it's somewhat, I can envision it. I want to feel what I think that would feel like. This movie is so like delicate with the introduction of the, the what could be a paranormal presence. It had me gripping onto my couch from right from the start as soon as it took this twist and leaned into this like kind of paranormal vibe i was just again filled with anxiety and and it, and it never relented <laughs> well yeah so they're hearing these noises you know and and whatnot and they're coming f- primarily from alice's bedroom so they they actually take steps because they obviously their minds aren't going to oh this is paranormal first they think maybe the door hinges need to be replaced so they take the door off they rehang it they think maybe it's pests so they call pest control and have you know the 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 room sprayed and and whatnot for pests but the noise still happens and then we even get a small segment of their neighbor georgie who talks about after alice died and you went into that house there was such a palpable bad feeling and the mother talks about June starts talking about how she at the same time started to have very distressing nightmares. And one of them was of Alice coming down the hallway, dripping with water and just standing at the foot of her and Russell's bed, staring at them. I'm literally cr- crying right, right now as you are describing it. And I'm not lying to the viewers. Tears are flowing down my face. I'm that I'm still that affected and scared by this movie. I swear to God. I said, oh my God, it's so scary. Continue. <laughs> it is scary, you know? And it's horrible. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much you believe in paranormal, in the paranormal, if you've ever had paranormal experiences. I mean, 
I have now. I was a I was a kid, but I remember how frightening they are when you have something so blatantly unexplainable happen to you, and the only rational explanation you can come up with is it has to be paranormal. And my parents had the same sort of experiences. It was in the house I lived in when I was a kid. And they, they had this kind of same experience where my, my parents said they would wake up in the middle of the night and see a figure standing at the foot of the oh bed. Oh my God, stop it. Stop I know. It, stop. I know. And I had, I had it happen one time. Now, was it a dream? I don't know, but I can tell you, Roger, it was one of, if it was a dream, it was the most realistic fucking dream I've ever had. I remember it to this day. So he, hearing the mother tell this story about waking up and seeing her dripping wet daughter just standing at the foot of the bed, staring at them really got to me. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I know. And the mother says that she was so distressed by these nightmares that she could, she would not even want to sleep anymore. And instead she would leave the house in the middle of the night and go for walks. And as you mentioned, just go into other people's houses just randomly. She says she, she knew it was wrong, but she just wanted to be in someone else's life for a while. It is so difficult to watch this woman's journey to be honest because it is it is so um gut-wrenching again the performance this whole moment when she's describing really how bad her grief got i don't know it, it, it's very emotional like it does this movie is shocking because not only does it manage to scare you at multiple times but it really emotionally impacts you you feel like you're watching something that is really making you I mean, just go through all the feels you know well, and as if if this mother's experience and dreams weren't bad enough, now we get Russell talking about an experience he had. Um, he started to work a shit ton of hours to get his mind off of what was going on. He felt guilty about working all these hours, knowing that his wife and his son were having such a hard time dealing with the loss of Alice. But he does make the comment. He's like, you know, I, I get it, but I just kind of wanted to, to move on. But he says, then there was one night after work. He came home. It was late. He kind of was sitting in the living room. And then he heard a noise coming from Alice's bedroom. So he goes into her bedroom to check it out. And as he's standing there, he literally sees Alice walk in her bedroom, go to her desk, to her nightstand, pick up a pen. And at this time, she is completely oblivious to his presence until he kind of makes a noise like, you know, like a clearing his throat to get her attention. And he says this caused her to go rigid, then turn to him and charge him and scream at him to get out. He swears that this really happened. And even June recalls that night where she heard him bawling in the kitchen and we also get a quick little interview with one of his co-workers who says yes he completely acted different after that night and the interviewer is like well do you believe that he saw a ghost and the co-worker says well i can tell you for sure that he saw something because he's not one to make this up and the way that it affected him he had to have seen something. You probably hear me sniffing over here, and it's honestly because I'm sitting at my desk with a tissue 
blotting tears away from my face. I'm, I'm so, I'm so, these are the only kind of things that can really, really scare me anymore are these paranormal kind of films. I don't know why. I don't even know if I believe in it, but for some reason it terrifies the shit out of me. And of course, tonight's one of the few nights that I'm sleeping alone because <laughs> Gustavo, Gustavo's off for work. He, he's out of state. So I'm alone with the goddamn dogs. Thank God. But now I know I'm going to wake up and see a goddamn mysterious black figure at the end of my bed, Troy. And I'm seriously, <laughs> so hearing like this moment, cause I'm, I'm recalling just, you know, having seen the sequence and I find it amazing that they, they choose to not show anything, but the father narrate this moment. And they still manage to create, let, they let you as the viewer create that visual in your mind. He's so descriptive and how he, you know, he describes it so thoroughly, the moment that you see exactly what he's witnessing in your mind. And it's still terrifying. It is still so horrifying because, again, it feels so real. So, yeah, I am I am shaken up over this movie. <laughs> this movie is unsettling. That's that's the word I would choose. It's uh, this is an unsettling film. And I'm glad that the overall consensus of this film, if you read reviews, definitely seems to be very positive. I just wish the film was better known because I really feel like, think about the films that have come out in the last 20 years. This one, I think, can rival a lot of the stuff that's come out that's really gotten a lot of attention as being, you know, we we talked about it with Jamie Blanks, the elevated horror. Uh, This... Talk about elevated horror. <laughs> this film makes you think and makes you question oh my a God. lot of what you think you know. And I think maybe the reason why it doesn't get the attention that it probably should for being as terrifying as it is, is the fact that it is a found footage film. And Blair Witch Project, which I love, I know a very divisive film, but the Blair Witch Project is one of my favorite horror films of all time. I will maintain that it is one of the scariest films ever made. I saw it in theater opening night and it scared the fuck out of a packed theater. I will never have another experience like that again. But after Blair Witch Project and the success that film had, look what happened. It's the same thing that happened in the 80s with the, with the success of Friday the 13th and Halloween. What happened? Tons of clones. Dozens of clones, and none of them came close to capturing the rawness, the grittiness, the realness that uh, Blair Witch Project had. So what happened? Just like what happened in the 80s, late 80s with slasher films, people started to get tired of them and dismiss them and be like, oh, God, not another slasher film. Come on, let's make something original. It's been done to death. So I really think that maybe this film suffered that same fate. People saw, oh, it's found footage film. It's just a Blair Witch ripoff when it is anything but. Absolutely anything but. I would say, without doubt in my mind, without doubt in my mind, Troy, I enjoy this more than Blair Witch. I will mm. say that for myself. I I, I I say this again, as having never taken the time to view this movie after one viewing. It, it impacted me on, on such a heavy emotional note while also blowing me away and the fact that it actually terrifies me. So let's keep going. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't want to get into debate about Blair Witch versus this film. I, this not because I love both of them. I think Blair Witch edges us out just for being more visceral, but yeah, this one. Okay. So we do get back to Georgie who I believe is the sister of Alice's boyfriend, Jason, if I'm correct, she talks about, 
And I'm glad it was brought up so subtly because anytime you have sort of a paranormal film, the typical way to go with it or the typical route to go with it is the religious aspect. You know, you know what I mean? Where you're bringing in, you know, priests to bless the house or exorcisms. I do like the fact that this film brings it up, (laughs) but just shuts it down really quickly because we get an interview with Georgie where she says after learning about what Russell and June experienced, she actually went to the church to ask them if they could do anything to help comfort and help this family who were obviously grieving extremely hard over the loss of their daughter. And the church basically says, nope, sorry, they're not members. <laughs> and that's leaves it at that. Um, so you never hear, you never hear another attempt to bring anything religious into the film. I think she's a really good example of a smaller side character that is utilized really well, played extremely well, but uh, they create quite a world around. It's not like you just have four or five people. There is a large cast of people experiencing aspects of the story and going along with them through the experiences. Um, And yeah, they're all very well played, including this girl. She does say that she is perhaps most worried about Matthew. Then again, Matthew is the teenage son. He was about Alice. I think he's probably older than Alice. She was 16. He's probably about 18. He looks like he's a young kid because he's starting to spend way too much time alone. And then we get a a quick interview that actually is very intriguing because I was wondering, it's never explored after this particular small little clip with the doctor. Apparently, a couple weeks after they started experiencing these paranormal this paranormal activity in their house. Matthew came to the doctor with a bunch of unexplained bruises on his body. The doctor's like, there was no cause for them. They were just sporadic, random. And then after a few days, they just disappeared. That was so interesting that they like had it be this rather startling addition of actual physical, I guess, violence, or at least yeah, like we're bruising to one of the family members like there's it's the only time you see something physical happen to anybody but is it real i mean is this is this something that is paranormal or is it something else i have a theory about what it what it is and I, when we get to the point in the plot where it's revealed i'll bring it up and see if you may agree okay oh yeah okay matthew best friend is interviewed and he's like yeah matthew has just become very quiet introverted he is just not the same what he has thrown himself into is photography. He's become very fond of photography to the point where he wants to learn more about photography. He contacts a local photographer to see if this local photographer would be willing to teach him kind of the tricks and the trade of, of taking compelling photos. The photographer agrees and Matthew catches on so quickly and does such a great job that he actually hires him. Clive. The guy's name is Clive, and he looks like he belongs on an early Beach Boys album cover. He's got he, he's blonde, foppish, fresh, with a nice button up. I like that shirt. <laughs> yeah, so Clive hires Matthew. And now we get a very sharp turn with an interview with Matthew, where the, we see a bunch of a collage of all these different photographs that Matthew has taken. And you can tell he definitely has talent as a photographer, but then he's sitting with the interviewer and the interviewer asks him about, can you tell me a little bit more about these backyard photos? 
and Matthew is like, well, yeah, uh, since we moved in this house, I've just had this little project where every three months I take the exact same picture of the backyard. And it, I've been doing it for about three years, every three months, just to just to capture any changes in the landscape, whatnot. However, the most recent photo of the backyard he took, which is April 28th. So this Alice died in December. So this is a couple months after her death. He takes this photo and as he is developing it and looking at it, we see that he captured an image of Alice standing in the backyard against the fence. Clear as day. Eyes watering. Oh my God. Horrifying. Why is it? Why, Trey, why is it so horrifying? It's so simple. It's just an image of a fucking backyard and a somewhat blurry silhouette of this girl. But they managed to build up to it in such a way that it is terrifying in and of itself. It's just terrifying to me. Well, I think a lot of the the disturbing aspect of these photos is definitely the 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 look of Alice because Alice is a very, when we see her, you know, because we do see clips of her and stuff. She's a very fair, dark hair girl. Um, it almost harkens back to like a Japanese horror film where you have the very pale skin girl with the long black hair. And it just makes for a striking image to see like in the background. And I think that's what makes these images kind of creepy because you have this like barren landscape or oftentimes very dark, landscape and then you have her with her long black hair and just very pale face just standing very still expressionless that's another thing there's zero expression on the face each time we see it and it does just make it super unsettling this is the first of the definite now paranormal activity involving alice and her ghost that we are privy to Right away, the family is smart. <laughs> I, I think it demand when they demand to have the body dug up. I'm like, you know what? After the second time I'm seeing this girl and fucking in these mysterious women in these fucking photos, I'd be like, dig it up, dig it up. It's actually yeah, because actually we then are after we see the photo of Alice in the backyard. There's an interview with an old friendly gentleman named Bob Smeet. Around the same time in April, he was at the dam where Alice drowned, taking pictures. And as he's going through his pictures, he notices in the background of one of them, a figure. And as we zoom in, we see that it is the exact same figure we saw standing in the backyard. It's Alice. At this point, as you mentioned, June becomes convinced that Alice is still alive. She has always been suspicious that Alice was still alive. She is actually has always thought that maybe Russell made a mistake identifying the body because even Russell stated that he, because of the bloatedness and the decomposition of the body that he said, it didn't even look like Alice. So that has always planted the seed in June's mind that maybe just maybe this wasn't Alice. Now this really convinces her. And so they, do request that the body be dug back up so that a proper DNA test can be done to prove or disprove that this is Alice. And what happens, Roger? It's 
fucking Alice. That is that is in fact her body. The body was Alice. And and then we get a very honest moment with Russell where and again Roger if this was a if this actor wasn't so good like in the hands of a lesser actor this moment right here could have could make the audience like lose a lot of uh sympathy for him but the way he plays it and delivers this little monologue is so somber and you know you you really actually sympathize with him he says that he really wishes that it would have been someone else's child he doesn't care whose he didn't care whose other t- he just was really hoping that it was someone else's child and not Alice which is apparent i mean you don't want anybody's child to be dead but i can see feeling that way the pain that they're going through i mean yeah it it it's it is a very honest moment just one in a series of really i think fantastic character choices they make for the whole family uh, even when certain characters make mistakes or screw up or admit to things, I never dislike these these people. They're clearly grieving. They're going through the, the, the all of the stages of loss. You know, um, they have a montage here, a video montage featuring Alice. And what I find really amazing in this movie is even though Alice is dead from the start. She very much feels like a character in the film. I mean, they make sure she is present. You see so much footage of her, photos of her, people talking constantly about her. She feels like she's there, you know, as part of the process. Oh, absolutely. You really feel like you get to know this girl and what she was going through and kind of the rationale behind some of her choices. We do learn then that the body was reburied two days later. But the mother does say then the question, we still have questions because who or what was in those photos if it wasn't Alice or if Alice is dead? We get Matthew saying that he has still been hearing the noises. So he sets up a video camera in the hallway of their home in the middle of the night. And on a specific day, June 13th, And we see the video. This is when the found footage aspect of the film comes into play. Because then we see this footage that he captures on June 13th. And we clear as day see an image moving across the screen from the living room to Alice's bedroom. This this fucking, this video. This video is when I really was just like, I I don't know if I can watch this anymore. I mean, this shot, signs, go fuck yourself. This is where it's at. This is like signs, only significantly more terrifying. This specific shot, man. Oh, it's it is gonna, it's going to stick with me. There's another shot though that's that I think is super creepy. That, ugh, especially, oh, I mean, there's there's one that we're building up to that is nightmare fuel. Yeah. I will be I'll be scarred for literally for months after. Seeing if it's the same it. one I'm thinking of, especially knowing like the backstory behind it makes it that that more just disgustingly my eyes are watering i can't stop yeah (laughs) it must be the same one it is it is okay so at this point we get introduced to a psychic named ray kemeny he's a radio he's a very renowned psychic in australia he does radio shows where people can call in and, you know, ask him questions. He'd be your like typical like Sylvia Brown or like Long Island Medium. 
Although he seems way more grounded and authentic than they do. Like what I really appreciate about this particular portrayal of a psychic, because think of all the other films, Roger, that we've seen where a psychic has been brought in. They are generally larger. Than they, life. Yeah, I was just going to say larger than life, quirky, you know, think of like Tangina from Poltergeist, uh, any, all of them. They're all like just larger than life. This guy could is literally not that way at all. He, in fact, is very down to earth and very honest about like his abilities and what he is trying to do. I mean, he never claims, so to speak, to have to be able to speak to the dead, to be able to do all this stuff. Like he doesn't like launch into some random like scene where he pretends he's possessed by, no, he's just very down to earth. He says, you know, I have what I like to do or what I, what I've decided to spend my time doing is giving comfort to people who have experienced death or who are close to experiencing death so that they, so that they find it less terrifying. And we do get a, a, some clips of him comforting, comforting this woman named Annie, who is kind of in the last stages of, of battling cancer, I believe. And he's comforting her and just telling her, you know, great things await for you. You know, you have nothing to be afraid of. So he is not like this psychic that is painted as being a, a villain, a phony or a fraud in terms of how he's presented in the film. Now, there are people in the film that are suspicious of him. Right. But the film never portrays him as being like this fraud or this guy that's out to hurt people and has a phony ability and is just doing it for attention at all. And I appreciated that. His introduction causes quite a shift too in the, in the overall film. It causes quite a shift because it really like you never know how far it's going to take something, including the paranormal element. And this is the point. I was like, they're really leaning into this. Like this story is kind of starting to follow what is to some certain extent kind of a classic blueprint for the paranormal haunted house genre. You know, the house is haunted. It's showing signs of it. One of the characters reaches out to another party, which in this case is Ray. They come in, their ominous warning, shit hits the fan. This starts to follow along those footsteps. It does quickly veer away from it. But I was already sold. Even if it was just going to be that, I was like, okay, bring it on. Uh, I was not prepared for what's about to come. We Well, June reaches out to him um, because she has listened to him on the radio. So we get a clip of her initial consultation tape with him. And he seems to do this because every time we get a clip of a consultation, he seems to have the same uh, strategy or same you know, scenario that he uses with his new patients. And that's to have them close their eyes, imagine they're outside their house, and then he just kind of walks them through, okay, go in your house. What do you see? What are you doing? And June tells him that she goes into her house. She immediately is drawn towards uh, Alice's bedroom. He tells her to go in, open the door, and tell him what she sees. And she says, I see Alice sitting in a wicker chair at the end of the bed. And she looks sad. Russell then is interviewed about Ray and he talks about how he was really not all that keen on bringing Ray into the picture. He says he's indifferent to psychics, but upon meeting Ray for the first time, he was pleasantly surprised. He, he said the, the dude wasn't he, in his words, he says he wasn't ooky spooky. He was actually pleasant um, and really kind of, 
formed a bond with the family. This whole sequence of uh, her narrating what is taking place as it goes over this hallway sequence, the story you just mentioned that June describes uh, of walking down the hallway, walking into the room. This is handled as a suspenseful sequence, and they build it up with ominous strings and this long, looming shot on this hallway. And man, I'll tell you, just in the way they executed this sequence alone, I was on the edge of my seat. And it doesn't even have a payoff, is the thing. It ends up that she enters the room, the chair is empty. They got me. You know, they got me. They build it and build it and build it. And you're really like, holy fuck, this is terrifying. And then it, it just it ends up being kind of a fluke on purpose. They're, it's almost like they're playing games with the viewer at certain points on purpose because sometimes then you're building up, you're building up, and it does happen and you are not prepared for it. So I think like the way they executed some of these scenes, how they timed them out, how they paced them and how they address them is suspenseful scenes is genius because you're never really prepared for how you're going to re- respond to something. Well, in fact, this very next scene does that because Ray actually suggests a week after meeting the family that they do a seance. Now, of course, Russell is immediately against it, but Matthew talks him into doing it. He's like, what can it hurt? Let's just see what happens. So they agree to do it. And Matthew films it again, something I appreciate from this film, because this is uh, most films would make this whole scene like, oh, we'd hear knocking and, and it'd become a, a, a exaggerated paranormal activity scene where people would be possessed and things would be flying across the room. That doesn't happen. And in fact, when they do the seance, absolutely nothing happens to the point where after an hour, they just give up and like, okay, well that was a bust. Nothing happened. It wasn't until the, the next day when Matthew was reviewing the footage that we see in the background because they're sitting at a table and in the background, you can see the door open to Alice's bedroom at the end of the hallway. We see in her room, standing there, staring out at the camera, is Alice. And as you zoom in, there is significantly way more detail to this particular image than there was the previous one. So it is clear that it's Alice. Oh my God, I'm seriously just in tears of fear right now. (laughs) I'm just crying, just thinking about... I'm not... I am so scared of this movie. I cannot even put into words. Tra- I am. Li- I'm weeping. This whole sequence. I sat there in my couch alone with my dogs, and they were so stressed because I was. I was so clearly terrified in this moment, and it just gets worse. <laughs> it just. It just gets scarier and scarier. But uh, I was when this happened. I was just like, "Fuck me. Fuck. I can't. I. I can't maintain my composure anymore." But again, it's just that subtlety that this film does, because like I said, any other paranormal film would have made the seance the key point in this particular scene where we would have shit happening, things sliding across the table. But but it's it's not that it's it's it, it's just a slight image of someone standing in the doorway. And that's why that is why, Troy, I at least me personally, I'm so affected. This movie doesn't opt to go for the big budget CGI scares. It's all about the simplicities. You're always looking in corners, in shadows. You as the viewer, there's some times where you're watching just 
B-roll of footage in the house and there's nothing there, but you're looking for it. You're looking for it because you're getting accustomed to this fucking horrifying presence existing in this house. It's terrifying. Well, and after they see this image, they decide that they definitely need to document and get more evidence of whatever is in their house. So Ray helps Matthew set up three different cameras that are going to be simultaneously recording 24 hours a day. Now this is intercut with, we hear from Georgie talking about how within the community, there was definitely skepticism as to why Ray was there, what his real intentions were. And then we cut to the sheriff, the sensible woman, stern woman, who again is played brilliantly for being such a minor character. Um, they ask her, what, what, what was your thoughts on the images that were caught on camera? And she says, well, I really have to question the leg- legitimacy of them. And they're like, okay, then what are your thoughts on Ray? And she says, I really have to question the legitimacy. So people are suspicious of the images and of Ray's intentions. Like people don't know if he's just trying to get money from them. And he even comes on in an interview. He's like, yeah, I realize people were very skeptical of me. They thought I was a charlatan. They thought I was just trying to get money from the family. They thought I was just trying to get attention, but I was literally there to help them. Uh, my, my chief motivation was definitely professional. He felt something was happening in the house and he wanted to find out what it was. And now we cut to just random footage and random dates that images were captured on this video camera. So on June 3rd, in the middle of the night, we see an image of Alice captured in her bedroom mirror, which is really creepy. Oh my God. <laughs> Uh, Yeah, uh, July 15th, an image of her is captured in a mirror, a small uh, desktop mirror that's sitting on a dresser. We see her image in it. Oh, my God. It's just the fact that, like, it's these tiny, minute, little details, and then they'll zoom in on it, and you're like, oh, my God, I didn't even fucking see that. And it's just, like, (laughs) it's it's horrifying. (laughs) I mean, you think about it. The film was made in 2008. The, The events take place in 2005, so... You have to remember video quality on cell phones and video cameras wasn't as clear and concise as it is now. So the, 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 the graininess and the blurriness just adds to the creepiness of these images. Especially as it zooms in, as it zooms into it. Yeah. I was going to say, because a lot of times you don't see what you're supposed to see until you zoom in and then you see it very clearly and it's very, very creepy. We cut to an interview with Russell. And they're asking him, the, the interviewer is basically asking, so what was your thoughts when you saw these images and videos? And he's like, you know what? Our family, we were godsmacked by them. But before we had time to react, the Wither video came out. And now <laughs> we cut to a lovely couple, the Withers. Oh, the Withers. Kathy and Doug Withers seem like a good time. Don't they they were a yeah, they're a blast. They're a blast. Fun loving folk, yeah. What they do or what they discovered causes the plot to shift in a way that I would have never, ever, ever imagined. So, long story short, this couple was at the dam on April 3rd. And if you remember, April 3rd was the day that Mr. Bob Smeet was at the dam and he captured the image of Alice in the background. So as they're going through the images and and news of this haunting is starting to get out and these images have been posted on 
news channels, they actually see an image from Bob Smee and they remembered, oh my gosh, we were there the same day. We have him on camera on, we have him in some of our pictures. So they have the common sense to pull out all of the pictures that they captured that day to see if they captured the same image that Bob Smeet did. And she very clearly, and it's like, oh shit, gosh, this is really, she's like, and we did. But when we zoomed in on it, it became very clear that it wasn't Alice and it wasn't a female. It's Matthew. A twist. Dun, dun, dun. What a fucking twist. How dare they make me feel so stupid? So we cut to an interview with Matthew and he, what I, he doesn't try to lie. He doesn't try to hide it. In fact, you know, the thing about Matthew's response to this is he doesn't seem overly upset or overly guilty about what he's done. I don't think that the gravity of what he's done really lands on him very well because he seems very indifferent to it. But he does admit to being there. He admits to being at the lake. He says he was even wearing Alice's jacket. And after this was revealed, his dad came to him and asked him, have you been involved in anything else? And Matthew says, you know what? At this point, I'm not going to lie. There was no reason to lie. So he admitted that he was responsible for creating all of the images of Alice that the family has captured in video and photographs. He basically just used double exposures of her. And and then the videotapes, what he would do was he found an old home video of her and would and froze it on the TV and then would face the TV towards the mirrors that we saw her images in so that it looked like she was in the reflection. I... Troy, I felt, I felt fucking stupid. The first, when I, when I got through this moment, I was like, how dare they? How, how dare they toy with me in that way? However, after basting on it a little bit, how impressive that they, I mean, I would still watch that sequence though of all those photos and be, and be horrified. I can tell you that much, even in knowing what the twist is, I still find it terrifying, but, oh. Well, imagine, you know, imagine the balls, a a film that is basically a paranormal haunting film and its core, what balls to come out midway through your film and be like, oh, this was all faked. It It is a gut punch. It's a gut punch you're not expecting because I don't think any other film has ever done that before. But think about all of these paranormal videos and pictures we see that become viral or that you can go to any YouTube channel. Look, you know, 99.9% of them are faked. Right. So it, it's, it just makes sense. And we got clues that this was him. If you go back and watch the, watch the movie, there are clues that he's doing it. His rationale though, for doing it is basically so that he could convince his parents to exhume the body so that they could prove to his mother once and for all that Alice was really dead. It's amazing how they're able to kind of manipulate my feelings towards this character. Because like I said, initially, I felt anger, like I had been toyed with as a viewer. But then, like, you hear that explanation, and it's, it's like, I buy it. And just the way it's presented, it's so matter-of-fact. I'm like, you mu- I mean, like, obviously, he wants to prove something to his mother so she can cope. 
and get past this um, a massive trauma she's experienced. Well, and the interviewer says, well, by doing this, do you not think that it made it worse? And he's like, well, yeah, it probably did, but that wasn't my intention. And then we get June's reaction where she, where she, where she says she doesn't really believe that he even knows why he did this. And of course this caused a lot of more media attention being placed on the family when, when the media caught wind that everything was fake because they have been giving the story, you know, time on the news. So now it's come out that it's fake. So it's getting, giving more attention. So they've had to deal with all of the strife and grief that this revelation has caused. We do get the reaction from the grandmother who says she wonders if she was responsible because, you know, she was never fully able to give herself to June as a mother. And she sees now that June was never fully able to give herself to Alice. So she's wondering if she's responsible for how much guilt and how much this has really seemed to affect did June because June may be feeling a sense of guilt that she never was able to form such a close mother-daughter bond with Alice that she thinks she should have. In the meantime, Ray is still around and he asks Matthew to accompany him on a weekend, little weekend getaway, little weekend trip that they're going to go on. As they leave, they decide to set up cameras still in the hallway and have them running. They get back from the trip. They check the tape. And lo and behold, what's on it? A mysterious fucking figure. A mysterious figure in Alice's bedroom. Now, June and Russell. They got me again, Troy. (laughs) They got me again. June and Russell come out and very clearly say that Matthew was not home. They were the only ones in the house. So it could not have been Matthew. Is Alice's ghost really there? Ready for this. This is heavy. I'm not. not, This is heavy. I'm not. I mean, I am. I am. But God. This is a direction. I, I mean, I did not see this going. But because of this new image that they caught, June very smartly decides to go back and review all of the previous tapes to see if maybe something was captured that they didn't notice before. And as she gets to June 5th, where there's the, initially they noticed the figure of Alice in the mirror in the bedroom. She, upon examining the footage, notices something else. And what it is, is it's a second figure squatting in Alice's bedroom. And they zoom in on this face. And it, I mean, talk about giving you chills. Oh, I'm crying. I'm literally, my greatest fear. (laughs) My greatest fear is this person's in my house. It's my greatest fear right now, Troy. I'm so scared. (laughs) I really am. It is an (laughs) ominous, creepy ass face staring at out from the bedroom. Right into the camera. Right into the camera. And she right away recognizes it as their neighbor, Brett Tui. Oh my God. That fucker. Yeah, well, this leads into Alice's mother, June, going into her bedroom 
and scouring it until she finds her safe that she knew Alice was hiding. She knew it had to be somewhere in there. She finally finds it. Inside this little safe is a videotape. And we are treated to the contents of this videotape. It's the Tui tape. And on this tape, let's just get it out there, is Alice with Brett Tui, who is a quite an older gentleman. Keep in mind, Alice is 16. The Tuies have two children that Alice has babysat for for the last three years. So these, this is a full-grown man, probably in his late 30s, early 40s. And his wife are on this tape with Alice in their bedroom. Chit-chatting. Before it, it launches right into showing them having sex, he is fucking this 16-year-old girl, missionary style, as his wife is next to her, touching her hair and feeling her tits. I was speechless when I saw this the first time. Those two should not have been filming this. (laughs) No. Well, June does, but when June realizes that that's what he was in the house for, he was looking for this tape. Russell chimes in and says that he definitely feels like the Tuies were complicit in Alice's death. Because she felt guilty about what she was doing to the point where she could not come and talk to her parents because of the guilt. And then we do get the random clips of like her, some of her high school friends talking about how nice Brett Tui was and how they used to go to his house swimming every weekend. And they just can't believe that him and Alice would do something like that. We also find out that Tui's up and moved. The sheriff comes on and in her jacks that they can't be located and that's all you get of them is the thing is it's that's all you get the 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 mother you know the the mother does say that she really hopes that brett tui or the tuis are consumed with an idea that that videotape is still out there and that it's going to be known who or what they really are yeah yeah i love i love the fact that they don't go any further into this specific these two characters because it leaves it so open-ended much like a real life murder mystery. As you know, Troy, there's so many things that are not solved. There's so many things that don't have closure. So the fact that they just kind of leave this hanging feels intentional and uh, just adds to the realism. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a pretty unsettling. I keep using that word, but it really is just everything about this whole particular chunk of the film from seeing his face for that first time when you actually zoom in and see it and then seeing the sex tape of of him having sex with the 16 year old girl that says wife is there and then just knowing that he was desperately trying to find this tape even after her death it's just wow i mean this is definitely something that you know you talk about sexual predators grooming young people and it definitely seems like this is what was going on here and that, you know, we don't know much about Alice at this point, but we can definitely know that this had to have affected her because what happens now is another twist where in her safe was also her Alice's appointment book. And as June is going through it, she finds a page that has Ray's business card taped to a specific date that was five months before she died. And then we get clips from her initial consultation with Ray, where he's asking her to do the same thing. The mother did stand outside your house, go in, give me a a tour. What do you see? 
Ray then is asked by the interviewer, why didn't you tell June that you had met Alice before? He simply states that he was honoring her request for confidentiality. I don't know if I'm sold on that completely. I mean, it definitely, this what this does for the storyline overall is quite phenomenal. But for him to use the excuse of confidentiality seems a little manipulative to me. Well, especially after she's passed away, like what confidentiality are you trying to protect now? Like you were there to help the family. And if you knew anything about this girl and her past and what she was going through, don't you think that would be really valuable information to share with her grieving parents? Because this really, at this point, June has lost all trust in him. And and I don't blame her. She's like, she couldn't trust Ray anymore. We do... Get a again a more clips of her consultation with with Ray, where she tells him that she's been feeling upset and that she feels like she's gonna die. And this is where that initial her initial dialogue from that opening scene of the film is from this consultation. And at the same time, June is reading an entry from Alice's journal, one of her last entries, where she's writing about how she woke up feeling wet, heavy. And helpless. And she went into her parents' room because she was so overwhelmed and went to the foot of their bed and was staring at them, but then realized that they couldn't even help her. So she couldn't, she didn't do anything except stand there and stare at them. Now, what does that sound like? All of these dreams, these moments that have been described by the parents earlier in the film are things that she is dreaming from her own perspective. And it's, I mean, really like, totally threw me and emotionally kind of gutted me because they make the decision to have the mother read this letter back and she's distraught. And and in turn, you as the viewer, I good chance you're going to be distraught as well because it is, it's pretty uh, heart wrenching. Um, it, It really packs a punch. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the, these these parallels that are running through the the plot with what Alice was experiencing versus what her mother was experiencing. Um, it starts to really come to a head here, real quick, as we approach the the final moments of the film. We learn then, and and June is reminded of this that Alice went to a on a school trip for four days to the titular lake, Lake Mungo. So we find out, finally find out where this title's coming from. So she went to Lake Mungo on a school trip for four days. When she came back though, she told her mother very solemnly that she had a good time, but she also came home without her phone, her favorite bracelet or her watch. And she really gave no explanation of why these things were missing. Now we go to Jason and Kim, his sister, who Jason was Alice's boyfriend. He had decided to really examine the video footage from Kim's phone from that weekend at Lake Mungo. And he decides to, in turn, then show June because he really doesn't want to keep anything from her. And he thinks it's kind of important for her to see this. So we, we see the footage and it's just a bunch of, I mean, it's just what you'd expect. Just a bunch of high school kids having fun, 
you know, chatting and partying. And what Jew notices though, is that everyone else around Alice looked super happy, but she looked very forlorn. And then one of the later videos she notices, and it's very faint. You can't really see it. You can see it, but you can't, but they try to zoom in and clear it out. And once you kind of, once she's telling you what it is, you do see it. But in one of these images, one of these videos, she notices that Alice is away from the group kneeling under a tree. And as they, you know, they zoom in closer and they, you know, get it clearer. They notice that she is burying something under this tree. Suspicious behavior, right? Suspicious. And so like, again, the, the detail is so intricate. So, so, uh, delicately placed within this video footage like if you blink you'll miss it and they really have to like zoom in on it to show like here's what she's doing here's the fact that you know we're able to prove she buried something over here it's not like it's just put out there for you to see it like you've really got to search to find it before they actually call it out and it it just feels so much more authentic you know yeah. So what does the family decide to do? They decide they're going to go to Lake Mungo for that for the weekend so that they can find out answers of what might have happened there. So they go, they decide they're going to wait till nighttime to go digging for to find out what Alice has buried because they don't want obviously they don't want tourists to see them digging in broad daylight. So it's nighttime. They go, they they find the correct tree based on what they saw in the video. And they start digging, and in a very few brief moments, Alice or June uncovers a plastic bag that has been buried. She takes it out, and inside of it is all Alice's stuff, including her cell phone. Uh, They take the cell phone back to the room, charge it, and at the same time, this is being intercut with Alice's consultation with Ray, psychic Ray, where she tells him again that she feels like she's going to die and that she can't do anything about it. At the same moment, the parents are watching the last video on her cell phone. And it's basically her walking down a trail, kind of recording what's in front of her. When all of a sudden a figure appears in front of her. And as we get closer we see that it is she comes face to face with her with a white bloated face that is exactly her face that we saw earlier in the film after it's been pulled out of the water it is creepy unsettling especially like i said the barren landscape the pitch blackness this this figure coming at her in the darkness and the expression on its face just is horrifying horrifying and there's like a there's a beat and then the footage like progresses and it like almost like shrieks at the camera it's like a it like it looks like it rushes the camera before she runs off and and when that happened i literally jumped and grabbed onto my dog like grabbed my dog's leg and i was like oh my god like i i i i audibly reacted to this moment i found it so terrifying um i can't think of anything in recent memory that has scared me as much as this specific moment i mean it is the kind of the obviously the pinnacle moment of the film 
And what we learn and, and what June tells us is that she is very convinced that Alice knew she was going to die and that the figure was obviously an omen for her because it is, like I said, it is the exact same face that we see at the beginning of the film. She buried her possessions as a symbolic and ritualistic outlet. And then we cut to Russell, who obviously he has to contradict his wife. He says he doesn't believe she knew she was going to die, that she saw a ghost. And it was kind of as simple as that. Where Matthew states, yes, she recorded a ghost. And what it was, was the future coming to get her. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm literally just sitting here dwelling on how this all has built up to this. And it really, um, it's a fascinating like conclusion moment when you start to put all of the pieces together. And they, they've been giving you, like I said, they give you breadcrumbs. They've been giving you pieces to this from the beginning. But when you get to this point and you realize this is what the story is really building up to. It, I mean, honestly, it, it, like as a horror fan, it takes my breath away. It really does, Troy. Yeah, I mean, it's it's quite the ending. And when you put all the pieces together and realize that the film is really, you know, about a a girl who has a premonition of her own death. I mean, it's it's quite unsettling. And again, I keep using that word, but it's the only that's the best word to describe this film. Uh, you know, I mean, I can say creepy, I can say disturbing, I can say horrifying, but you know, the film starts one way, takes a different direction and we think it's something else. It takes a different direction. We think it's something else. And then ultimately what we learn it is, is something very, I think, you know, relatable to common viewers, because I think we all think about death, right? And, and when, when and how, and I don't want to sound morbid, but we, I think we all think about that. When is my time to go? How am I going to go? And you kind of have to decide. Some people really believe that destiny is predetermined, that your fate is sealed and how you're going to die has already been determined. And when you're going to die has already been determined. So I think that this film takes that idea and just presents it in such a layered, nuanced way that it never seems outrageous it never seems phony i mean everything that happens in this film seems very grounded and very believable whether you believe in the paranormal or not and i think that that's what this film does so well and and why it is so disturbing but we're wrapping up here they return home and they say that the house feels different now it feels calm and that June says that she th- realizes that Alice one, wanted them to know more about who she really was before she died. So all of this s- stuff that's been happening were little clues from Alice so that her parents could really discover the new, her, the, the real her and what, what happened to her and what she'd been dealing with and why she was so closed off to them. And they start to feel like a family again after the visit to Lake Mungo, after discovering what they did, they start feeling like a family again. They even invite Ray over one last time when he calls to say he's coming through town. He sure seems to be a real close family friend. They're going on picnics. Yeah. They're they're going uh, to competitive cycling together. (laughs) They're having themselves a good time. 
Well, I'm glad that they were able to, you know, forgive him for his ridiculous, you know, handling of, of that situation because it was a betrayal of trust. But as they say, as they clearly say, Lake Mungo was closure for them. So much so, Roger, that they decide to sell their house and move away as a final, final step to achieving closure. So we get the final clip of June's last consultation with Ray. He asks her again to close her eyes and imagine she's outside the house. She does. He says, go inside. What do you see? She says, I walk to Alice's room. Now, this is brilliantly intercut back with Alice's first consultation with Ray, where she's saying that she's in her room and she hears someone coming down the hall. And as they get into the room, she realizes it's her, her mother. And Alice says, but I don't think she knows I'm here. And then we cut back to June saying, as she enters Alice's bedroom, Alice isn't there. Again, their stories are mirroring each other. And we are very much aware then that Alice was having this exact premonition of what's going on right now you know because because june has taken one last walk through the house and she goes into alice's bedroom one last time and then they close their moving truck and they move but before they move they take one last picture in front of the house and it's the picture that opens the film of the three of them russell june and matthew standing in front of the house posing pictures just there and then slowly start to zoom in to the front window of the house. And as we get up close, we see the faint image of Alice watching them from the window. So faint. So faint. So faint. I've got literal, literal goosebumps all over my body right now upon this recollection of this moment. I, I was floored at the end of this. And I think the one thing that really kind of blew me away was how I've used the term intricate a few times, but how intricate this metaphor is actually, actually is how it's written. It is so intentionally building up to really be a metaphor for the importance of grieving and letting certain things go and proceeding with your life, at least for June's character. And I think beyond being so impressed with this film and just how effective it is, what really grabs me is how beautiful that conclusion is. It's still tinged with a, with an element of horror and the paranormal with that final photo, but it, it, the closure, the fact that that family is able to move on and have some peace, I really thought it was just like a perfectly wrapped in, in a beautiful bow. What a conclusion. What a conclusion, but they are, they are leaving Alice behind. I mean, she is in the house. They're leaving her behind. I mean, but she seems to hopefully be content with the fact that they are moving on and the fact that they were able to find out exactly what happened to her. Now, as the credits roll, Roger, I really hope you didn't shut it off because if you did, you missed a lot. As the credits roll, we, we see as the credits start to roll, we start to see the photos from earlier in the film, right? We see the one of the backyard that uh, Matthew faked. Now we clearly see the fake Alice standing there, which when we first saw the photo, 
that's where our attention was, right? Because that's where that's where our attention was forced to be because the camera zoomed in and we saw that. So we weren't looking anywhere else. However, this time we go to the other, we zoom into the opposite side of the picture to the very corner and we see Alice's figure sitting on the bench. Oh my God. I'm I'm so scared of this movie. And then we see, you know, one of the other from the video that he took where we see Alice clearly in the mirror. However, again, our attention was forced to be focused there, but then we actually see on the other side, her figure is actually standing in the corner. So all of these videos and and pictures she was actually in, but just in different spots. And I thought that was super clever, super creepy. And I was like, Oh, come on. No way. No way. But if you go back and watch the movie now, knowing that yes, there, they, she is clearly in all of them. You just don't notice it because the, the film forces you to look elsewhere at the fake Alice so that you don't see the real Alice. I was floored. I was floored. I mean, because what it tells us is whatever what was happening was really happening. That you know the film tries to pull a fast one on us and tell us halfway through. Oh nope, sorry, this we're just kidding. You know, there's really no ghost in the house. But yes, there was the whole time. I don't know. I mean, this film just is so brilliant. Oh my god, I like I I need to emphasize how like th- truly affected I am by this film. And like, there really are very few things that can provoke such fear out of me. I'm so desensitized, Roy. I mean, you show me someone get pulled apart, gutted, stabbed over and over. I mean, I, I, I've seen it all before. But man, I'm I will not be able to sleep tonight. I will be swearing against your name, cur- cursing you, because I, I, it's the man. This is the kind. This is the kind of horror cinema that really captivates me is uh, it's not all in your face. It, it's not just, you know, spilled out in front of you. You really have to work for it. But when you find it, like when you find these little moments at the end, oh my God, it is, uh, you feel it through your whole body, the shock, the fear. I mean, I really, I literally, listeners, I am still reeling and and really, like I said, basting in this movie. And I'm just reeling from it because I was, blown away it's my favorite title you've suggested thus far i am and i mean i and listen i can't cry on cue as an actor i can't do it i am i literally have physically been reacting to these moments recollecting them so it is that is the effect this this title had on me and i i mean that well i i was curious to see how you would react to this film i you know i i like i told you at the beginning this is a film i try to suggest to ever anybody that asks for a a scary film or a film that's going to affect them. That's not just blood and guts. And I think this is it. This film is very cerebral. The film definitely makes a clear statement about grief and, you know, the, the, the dangers or the benefits of how you might handle your grief, you know, grief caused, you know, June's grief caused Matthew to do something drastic. And that was to fake all of these images of Alice. Right. And there's just several examples of that throughout the film, you know, um, the neighbor, Brett, basically, I'm going to say sexually assaulting Alice. She's 16 years old, led to her becoming 
closed to her parents and not expressing herself or what she was going through. I mean, all of these little things play off of one another. And then at the heart of the film is, like I said, it's a film about a, a young girl who unfortunately has an ex- has a, a premonition of her own death. We then are treated to the puzzle pieces of 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 actually getting to precisely what happened to her. And it's it's incredibly sad. It's incredibly sad. She knew she was going to die. I mean, she she told the only person at that point where she felt she could trust Ray that she knew she was going to die. And she was just waiting for it. And then for it to happen in such a, you know, a manner when she was with her family, you know, and all that. And I, oh, I want to mention it because I, I, I don't, I forgot, but I was wondering, because I did say I had a theory about Matthew's bruises. Do you, I, you know, I, I'm thinking that it's possible that maybe he got them from when he was at the lake pretending to be Alice. Like maybe like running through the woods when he, when he realized that he was being caught by the other family, maybe he took off running and ran into some branches or something because otherwise there's nothing else in the film that would ever lead me to believe that like Alice's spirit was assaulting him because it doesn't seem like it was a malevolent spirit. So I kind of thought about that. I was wondering if maybe his bruises were a result of him at that lake that day. That's a really smart <laughs> conclusion to come to, to be honest. That's a good call. Good, good catch on that. Cause that would make sense to be honest completely. Yeah. I mean, all I can say folks is I, I will maintain that this is one of my favorite horror films of the last 20 years. I definitely think it is one of the, if not the best, one of the best horror films of the 2000s by far. I mean, if it's a film that if you're looking for a film that you just want to put in and just be totally absorbed and affected by, this is it. So I would love to hear, you know, your thoughts on this episode and your thoughts on this film. And Roger, I don't know if you knew this or not, but about I don't know how many, maybe five, six years ago, there was heavy talk and it's still you can find articles about it. There was going to be an American remake of this and it never happened. And this is one of those times that I'm thankful it never happened because I could I could totally see the route it would go. It would become a basically an insidious conjuring type ripoff. They would completely miss the nuance of the film and go over the top. I also just think that one of the things that makes this film creepy er are the landscapes, the barren Australian outback. And you're not going to get that with the United States. Uh, so I was really glad to hear they dropped that idea and just kind of left this film alone. But on the flip side of that, I, this film needs to be better known. Why is this film not better known? I gave my idea why it's not better known. I'm just asking and, you know, I think because it's, you know, still considered foreign cinema. I think that a lot of American viewers are, are simple minded enough that even a simple accent will be a turnoff, which I'm sorry. The moment I heard those Australian accents, I was drawn in. But I think that is just a standard American mentality to which I say, get the fuck over it and watch this movie if you want to have the shit scared out of you and also make you reflect on the deep complexities of life and death. Uh, you get the full package with this movie and you will be left for days, I'm sure, thinking about it and dwelling over it. 
I, I, I know I was the first time I saw it and I watched it, you know, I've watched it twice in the last two days to prepare for this episode. And each time I watched it, I, I just have kind of the same reactions. It's just a, it's a somber film as well. I, I think the tone of this film also is just right away, super somber, super depressing. Um, there is like this light piano score, this haunting piano score that plays over certain scenes in the film that just adds to that depressing atmosphere. And just the way the characters are all so down, it just gets under your skin. It gets under your skin. I'm very happy, Roger, that you liked this film. It's one of my favorites and I love to share this film with people. So I'm glad that we finally got to cover it on the podcast. Hopefully we did it justice. Oh yeah. I, I can honestly say, Troy, I, already, I, I can assure you that I would add this to my list of favorites as well. I cannot remember the last time I reacted to a film in a similar fashion. And certainly on this podcast, um, it's, it's an authentic reaction. Yeah, no, I've never heard you get, you know, worked up and, and just so over a film we've done now. We've had a lot of fun with films. We, we're usually very we try to be very humorous, very entertaining, but this is such a serious title that, you know, I think Roger's reaction is, is definitely how most people are, are going to react in, in one way or the other. And I miss that. I miss feeling that like, as a, as a fan of the genre, it's rare that I feel that anymore. It is very rare. Now, again, I'm going to tell you another title. And now that I know you haven't seen it, we need to put it on our to cover list ASAP and maybe it'll be next month. Session nine. I swear to God, session nine has the exact same tone, the somber tone as this film. Now, session nine is not a, a mockumentary. Session nine is a, a typical narr- narrative, fictional narrative film. However, you pair these two movies together, session nine and Lake Mungo, and you are going to be terrified. I, I mean, I'm literally right now thinking, how will I sleep? tonight like how will i find myself peace after seeing this movie there's no way well i don't know put on put on put on blood hook oh my god uh you know what that'll that'll lull you to sleep yeah, easily easily <laughs> fucking what's his name what's his name's mopey oh ass my face god. he looks he looks like melting play-doh that man <laughs> peter's peter's goddamn Peter. your like face um <laughs> you know if we're going to talk horrifying films uh, titles that really invoke fear next week's review is one of those titles dare i say uh next week troy we're gonna be waking up in vegas it's called waking up in vegas week i've already decided because that goddamn Katy perry song i can't stop singing <laughs> um and and we're we're really leaning in uh we're gonna be reviewing the thrilling absolutely terrifying leprechaun three <laughs> Oh, okay. I have to admit, and I know I, I told you this already when you talked about reviewing this, um, I've never seen any of the Leprechaun movies. I don't think you need <laughs> any backstory. Oh, I, I, trust me, I'm not watching part one or two to prepare. Um, so hopefully you don't need to watch the first two. I will gladly watch Leprechaun 3 because it's your pick, and I know it has to do with Vegas, and it has Carolyn Williams in it. So I'm in. They, I've just they've just never appealed to me. Like I, you know, I'm not a big fan of those types of films with like killer. What do you want to call it? Like characters, wisecracking creep. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I like slasher films. Okay. But like, 
I'm not really into like the killer leprechaun, killer dolls. Even like I feel like even Chucky there for a while got kind of annoying. The same thing they did with Freddy Krueger. They kind of made him a comedian rather than a horrifying, you know, scary figure. So like to me, a little leprechaun, not scary. So, but I'll watch it. Maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised. Oh, no, I mean, you won't. <laughs> no, you won't. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, you may, you know, you, I would, I would never, I would have never watched mutant based on its description, but you chose it last week and I absolutely, I really, really enjoyed it. So, but yeah, we need, we need a, we need a, a fun palate cleanser after this week. That's episode. what I'm thinking. So, we need to take it light. I mean, so like- it will be leprechaun three live from Vegas because folks, Roger and I are reuniting a week from the time we're recording this podcast episode. We will be in Vegas together and we are super excited folks because me and Roger have not actually physically been in the same room since we filmed my film teacher shortage back in 2018. Is that night 18? 18 or 19. Yeah. I mean, we, because we don't record our podcast together, obviously we live in different cities, so we record it remotely. So we haven't seen each other. So a week from today, we will be living it up in Vegas and yeah, live from Vegas, Leprechaun 3. I'm counting down the fucking minutes. The the strip isn't ready for that. Absolutely. I don't think, I don't think it ever was ready. I don't think it ever will be. Uh, But for some reason we're going to review it. And there's only so many titles that take place in Vegas. This is one, and I thought, you know what, when better, what is the only time we would ever consider reviewing this movie? So, might as fucking well. On that note, Troy, um, I need to go take a sedative to get myself, because I am horrified. Put on, put on blood hook, oh take God. a sedative, you'll be asleep in oh no time, God. I guarantee you. What have you it. done to me? But also, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Well, folks, that was Lake Mungo. Uh, next week, tune in for Leprechaun 3. Again, check out our Patreon for exclusive episodes. We will have some great stuff up for April as well. We covered Blood Frenzy last month. Uh, and then Apple Podcast, if you enjoy what we're doing, because we love you, we appreciate you. You are the reason why we take time out of our week every week to do this. So, just go hit the little five-star review. It takes you three seconds. I just wept for you. I just cried for two out for two consecutive hours. I cried in fear. You can at least leave me a five-star fucking review. Exactly. On that note, guys, we love you. Thank you for your support. And you guys have a wonderful night. Don't go to the lake. We'll be seeing you in Vegas. We will. We'll, we'll post plenty of pictures. <laughs> All right, guys. Good night. Bye. Bye.